Go ahead and turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, as we continue to make our way through this letter. Actually, as we finish out the first chapter tonight, so it's a great moment. Some of you probably thought we were never going to get there, but wrapping up the first chapter. And if you've, uh, if you've hung in there with us, you know that we've been going through these exhortations of Paul to Timothy, these continuous exhortations, really from verse 6 all the way to the end, to uh, essentially keep going, persevere in faith, you know, honor your call as a gospel ministry, be faithful to the end by the power that God works in you. And we'll see that again tonight, but really Paul's kind of switching gears and not really telling him to do these things as much as he's going to show him with two real life examples here that we never would have known of if not for Paul bringing them up here. So it's kind of a blessing to be able to see that. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, we will focus on 15 to 18, but I want to start in verse 13 just to get the context. So 2 Timothy 1, verse 13. And let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you will know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. The word of the Lord is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Let's thank our Lord for it. Heavenly Father, we, we give thanks, Lord, for these incredible mercies that we were just singing about. The amazing grace that we have been given in Christ, the hope that we have for eternal life, even for sinners like us. So we ask, Lord, in spite of these wonderful mercies, Lord, that you would please help us to now offer our bodies in response as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in your sight. We ask, Lord, that you would keep us from conforming to the pattern of this world by renewing our minds through your word tonight, by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the, the last few years, I have been kind of collecting evangelistic resources and trying to test them out and think through them. And I've discovered a lot of good ones and some really, really bad ones too. But um, one of my favorite actually is this little bitty tract called Two Ways to Live. Has anybody ever heard of Two Ways to Live? Nobody. Wow, really? Okay. It's Matthias me. It's really good. Um, but it's a great little track. And the reason why I love this track, and then by the way, we can talk more about if tracks are helpful and all that kind of stuff and which ones are good. There's many other good ones. But the reason I like this one is because it really emphasizes the response to the gospel. A lot of gospel tracts really downplay the response to the gospel. And what ends up happening is that when you call people to repent, it really sounds like you're offering them... Uh, some good news that really is more like kind of a good idea, right? You're saying, here you go. 
Here's the good news, which is really kind of like good advice. Take it or leave it, do whatever you want. There's no real consequence for your choice, right? Some of you might even be familiar with the old campus crusade line. Well, it's God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. A lot of people look at that and say, that's fine, but I have a wonderful plan for my life too. And you know what I'm doing just fine without that. So it doesn't really bring an urgency there. But I I love this gospel track because it tells the reader really clearly that you're at a fork in the road. This is a moment where you must make a decision. There is only two ways to live. That's it. There's no gray area. There's rebellion against God by trying to rule yourself, rejecting God's mercy, which is the path that the unchristian is already on, right? Rebelling against God from the beginning, and that path ends in judgment and eternal damnation. But there's the other path, which is where you recognize your sin, repent of your sin. You submit yourself to God and put yourself under Christ's rule and blessing. And that path does end in forgiveness and eternal life. But it's, it's abundantly clear. There's no middle ground, no gray, gray area. There's no kind of back and forth. There has to be a costly choice. Even as a believer, to let go of the world that you think is so valuable because you don't really understand what's going on there. Um, and to trust in God and hold on to him. Now, don't you see, we see this choice all over scripture, don't we? see this repeatedly in Genesis, even from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Will you submit to God's rule and his blessing by obeying his law, or will you eat of the fruit? Seek to rule yourself. Decide good and evil for yourself. We see the same choice, by the way, throughout Genesis every time a genealogy comes up too, don't we? Which family do you want to be a part of? The seed of the woman Are you going to trust in these promises, trust in the God that would send the Messiah to crush Satan? Will you be a part of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family? Or will you be part of the seed of the serpent? The family that will have judgment, maybe even success for a time, but judgment in the end. Family of Cain and Ishmael and Esau. The prophets bring their people to this moment of decision, don't they? Is, uh, Elijah's probably one of the clearest ones. Before he takes on the prophets of Baal, do you remember what he says? Before he kind of brings down fire from heaven, we remember that moment in 1 Kings 18. He says this, how long will you go limping between two options back and forth? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Make a decision. There's two ways to live. And of course, we see this most clearly in our Lord who was the way, right? Told us that he was the way. And he says this in John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There's path one. There's the way you should live. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's the path number two. Now, the reason I tell you this is because in our passage tonight, Paul presents two ways to live. He's not just presenting that to Timothy, he's presenting that to the church in Ephesus and even the church at large, so us as well. So what we see in this passage is Paul clearly saying, there's two paths, which one are you going to follow? First, there's the path of shameful desertion. Shameful desertion, we see that in verse 15 with those funny names, right? Phygelus and Hermogenes, we'll talk about their desertion there. And then second, there's the path of spirit-empowered devotion. And we see that from verse 16 to 18 with Onesiphorus. So there's really these two illustrations of these two ways to live. But you know what? If you've been with us for the last 
at least month, you know that Paul has already been laying out these two ways to live, hasn't he? Throughout this text, every single week, the path of desertion is the path of fear, verse 7. Shame, verse 8. And the path of devotion is the path of unashamed love and self-control, verse 7. And suffering even, following Paul into that devotion. And it even, Paul even talks about how we're able to walk that path, because I don't want to go into suffering. None of us want to seek those things out. But Paul even says, will you have the path of devotion? You follow that path by the power of the Spirit, verse 7, and the power of God, verse 8, knowing that God is the one at the end of the day to guard you along the way, verse 12. So we've seen Paul over and over again present these two paths, but it becomes really clear at the end now as he presents people as illustrations to these two paths. Listen to verse 13 and 14 again as Paul summarizes the devotion we're called to and also the empowerment that we have. Look at verse 13. Here's the first path. Really, it's the path of devotion here he's summarizing. Follow the pattern of, excuse me, the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. And look at the end of verse 14. He says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That's essentially the same command in a little bit different angle, isn't it? Keep, follow the same pattern of words that I've given to you. Guard the gospel that I've entrusted to you. And how are we supposed to do that? Middle of verse 13. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And, 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So I hope you can see Paul's point here. Keep, guard, um, devote yourself to this. And how are we going to do that? By the power of, spirit, of the Spirit. And by the grace that we have in Christ and by his example following in line with him. So we see Paul calling Timothy, don't follow the path of shameful desertion. Don't follow these people and abandon me in the gospel. Walk the path of spirit-powered in devotion to the Lord. So that's what we see here in these two points. And let's look first at the bad path, the path that is really the shameful desertion path. We see that on a large scale in verse 15, and then Paul kind of shrinks down and really zooms in on two people. So verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand this here. When you hear Asia, I bet most of our minds go, okay, China, right? Vietnam, Japan, that's not the Asia we're talking about here. This is the Asia in the ancient Roman providence. And so Asia Minor in that sense. So today it would be kind of modern Western Turkey. And in that area were churches like Ephesus and Colossae. Ephesus, remember, even is the, the church that Paul is writing to here as he's writing to Timothy, the minister at Ephesus, as well as lots of other churches, all the churches you would see in the book of Revelation, Philadelphia, right, Laodicea, all those churches are in this region. And what does Paul say about them? All of them, all who are in Asia, turned away from me. Now, it can't be literal, right? can't be literal because he's talking to Timothy at the church in Ephesus. So Timothy at least is trying to hang in there with Paul, persevering in faith, and we'll talk about another man, Onesiphorus, who also is faithful as well. So it's not literally meaning every single Christian. Now, I do think Paul might mean, in a bigger sense, every church. There are people in every church that have walked away. Maybe this wide-scale abandonment here. And, and by walked away, I don't mean this. It's not like they got mad at Paul. They got frustrated with Timothy, so they went to the church down the street. And we can do that here in our age in some ways, right? That's not how it worked. There's one church of Ephesus. 
So when they walk away from the church, they're not just walking away from Paul. They're walking away from his message, the gospel as well. So they're rebelling against God and walking the faith, abandoning from the, the faith completely here. And what a sad, heartbreaking moment this must have been for Paul, right? People he loved. Churches he planted. Blood, sweat, and tears he put into these people. And in moments when he needed them the most, moments he'd hoped they'd be faithful and walk with the Lord, they, they completely deserted him. Completely abandoned him on a wide scale. Now, how exactly did they do this? Well, even why did they do this at first? Well, maybe they thought, some thought, well, Paul is not really a good leader anymore. Right? He's, he's in prison. He's been in prison a couple of times now. I don't know if I want to follow an enemy of the state. That might be part of it here, the shame there that that might have. But I think more so, especially in line with everything else we've learned, they don't want to follow Paul because they don't want to suffer like Paul. That's the problem. That's what they're shrinking back from. Especially as Nero is coming up with more new and gruesome ways to kill Christians in that area. The Christians are starting to run. I think it's a lot of like what happens in the parable of the sower. Remember Matthew 13 with the, the seed that falls on the rocky ground and is scorched by the sun? Listen to what Jesus says here. They receive the word with joy initially, and the root doesn't go down very far. They endured for a while, but listen, when tribulation or persecution came on account of the word, on account of the message, what do they do? They immediately fell away. That's what Paul's seeing here in Asia. And they fell away in a couple different ways. At first, when Paul was first arrested, they didn't show up. When he was put on trial, we see that, we'll get to this eventually, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he basically says, no one came to stand by me. No one gave a defense. No one came, not, not one leader in the church, not one brother in Christ in the church, nobody I discipled, nobody showed up to say, you know what, I'm not an enemy of the state. I'm not a threat. He was abandoned at that trial. Now, even though he eventually got out and he actually was arrested again, the abandonment continued. That's the second time, as, as we talked about in the beginning, he was thrown into this kind of dungeon-like prison. And they really, really deserted him there leaving him to die, really. Sad. These are his brothers and sisters in Christ, and they treated him not like a brother, a sister, a friend, really more like an enemy, which is why Paul is, is really sad about this moment, even though he's still trusting in the Lord. So all of Asia abandoned Paul in some general sense, but then he zooms in on two men in particular, two men that are more the examples of shameful desertion. So look at verse 15 one more time. Verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me and listen, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, why does Paul identify these two men? Well, I hope you can see there, he doesn't give a reason, does he? There's no specific reason that he says, well, yeah, these men need to be called out here. But likely, because he does this with other men, these men were leaders in the church probably officers in the church. If, if not leaders in the church, then they were a part of leading people astray. Maybe through slandering Paul, maybe through preaching a false gospel, whatever it might be, but this is Paul's pattern. He actually does this, if you've been keeping up with us, with six men. He calls out men like this six times in these two letters, First and Second Timothy. You remember last, um, well, it's been months now, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, Paul said, he handed over Hymenaeus, uh, 
and Alexander to Satan. Why? That they may learn not to blaspheme. So he's calling them out because they're false teachers. And then at the end of this book, in chapter 4, Paul calls out another Alexander, Alexander the coppersmith, for what? For opposing the gospel message. So these were well-known leaders that the church knew were leading people astray, were ashamed of Paul and his message. And so Paul calls them out, and he groups these two men along with them. How terrible would this be, by the way? These are the only verses we have about these people in the whole Bible. Talk about a terrible legacy. We know that Peter repented. right? He came back, and God did amazing things to Peter. We don't have any record of these men repenting like Peter at all. They basically are known forever now as traitors, deserters, apostates. They take their place in line behind men like Judas. A terrible moment for them, I'm sure. Now, here's why I say that. I, I think most of us look, like that, look at that and say, wow, I'm glad that's not me. <laughs> I don't want my name singled out like that in the Bible. And you know what? I'm so glad that I know I will never abandon the faith. I will never do what they did. I will never walk away from God. We have to be really careful when we think or say things like that. Peter said that, didn't he? I will never deny you, Lord. Three times. Three times so quickly. I think all of us might believe that at some points and even really hope that that's the case. But I think we underestimate the wickedness that's in our own hearts at times. That's why Paul warns, this, warns us against this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, we all experience temptation in different ways, but kids, I want you to know, you are living at home right now, growing up, you're hearing the gospel multiple times throughout the week. There will be times in your life where the world will seem to speak louder than the church, where you will be tempted to walk away from the faith, tempted to believe, you know what, maybe, maybe following Jesus is not all it's cracked up to be. Maybe the God of my parents isn't really good like I thought he was or like I, taught, I was taught he was. Maybe the world has something better to offer or safer or uh, more enjoyable, whatever it might be. You're going to hear those lies someday if you're not hearing them already. And adults, you can join me with this. That's, we fight that all the time, don't we? The lies of the world. Now, adults, we might actually be put in a moment like Timothy, where we have a fork in a road, where our decision to follow Jesus would become way more costly. By God's grace, we live in a culture where that's not always the case, but it may come down to the place someday where it's either suffer with Christ or walk away. Lay down your life to follow him or just walk away from the faith. Brothers and sisters, are you ready for moments like that? Moments where you have to choose suffering over safety? Moments where you are laying down your family, your friends, the American dream, all to follow Christ? Following Christ is costly. He reminds us of that constantly. We count the cost. Are you ready to do that? Because that's what Paul is calling us to do here, along with Timothy, to be faithful no matter what it costs us, to not give in to shameful Desertion, like Phygelus and Hermogenes, even when we're afraid. Even when we don't know how much it's going to cost us. No, instead we need to walk the path of faithful devotion. Spirit-empowered devotion here. Let's talk about that in verse 16, the second point here. Spirit-empowered devotion in verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy 
to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. What a wonderful description of this brother in the faith. Now maybe some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, why did his household get called out? Why did the blessing go to the household of Onesiphorus and not just the man himself? Well, a number of reasons could be there. It could be that his household helped in many ways, but I think it's actually his household had to sacrifice for his ministry, for him to do what he did with Paul. It was a tremendous sacrifice for Onesimus' household. Now, if you don't know, they lived in Ephesus. We find that out at the very end of this letter. This man lived with his family in Ephesus because Paul greets the household of Onesiphorus at the end of this letter. And Paul in Rome is a thousand miles away. Most of us don't even want to take a thousand mile car trip, right? Imagine where it's a thousand miles away and the only way to get there is walking six to eight weeks or getting on a boat and then walking some more. Maybe three weeks if you're lucky. It's a tremendous sacrifice to go do this. Kids, I'm sure you can relate to this, right? When mom or dad leave the house for a day or two, it's rough, isn't it? You miss them. You want them around. How about six, eight weeks? Wives, would you be willing to send your husband off? Not to a place, by the way, where, yeah, you're going to go help a brother in Christ, but you're going to go to a nice, nice, safe city where Christians are accepted. What about sending them off to somewhere like China, Afghanistan? Christians are being killed regularly because that's where he's headed. Wives, imagine saying goodbye to your husband, seeing him walk out the door and, and never hearing anything. It wasn't the day of cell phones or constant communication like we have. Not hearing anything for six to eight months, just hoping one day he would walk back through that door. That's a tremendous sacrifice, isn't it? And don't forget what it says here. It says that he often, often refreshed Paul. Which either means he made this trip a lot, or he stayed a long period of time. So maybe a year at a time. Tremendous sacrifice for his family and his kids and so on. Hope you can see, though, too, that his, he was so much more devoted, to than all the men um, that we just talked about and then even who Paul has been warning us against. Look at this devotion here. It says, verse 16, he is not ashamed, at the end of verse 16, not ashamed of Paul's chains. Well, we see this when Onesiphorus is willing to run into trouble, isn't he? When all the Christians were running away from Rome, trying to get out of there as fast as they could so they wouldn't suffer persecution with Paul, this man is running in to Rome, risking his life, and he didn't hesitate to say, you know what, this is too great a sacrifice for me. This is too much. I have a family to think about. I can't risk them. They need me. I'm too busy. There's so many things going on. All the excuses we can throw out not to be faithful. This man threw all of them aside because he's not ashamed of Paul's chains. And he risked it all to earnestly, earnestly seek God. Verse 17, earnestly seek Paul, excuse me. He did earnestly seek God by serving Paul, but he's earnestly seeking out Paul. Now, I think Jason mentioned this a few weeks back, but Paul's imprisonment here was, was pretty unique. It's unique in the sense it's not like today. Right? He was in a dungeon-like place. The Mamertine prison is, is a terrible place where they were thrown into a hole pretty much to just kind of die slowly. And if they don't die fast enough, they take him out and then execute him. Essentially, that's what's happening. 
So when Onesiphorus went to Rome, it was almost impossible to find Paul, just in a hole somewhere, and he had to risk his life just asking questions and finding Paul. And then if he found Paul and associated with this criminal, he was also putting his life on the line. In fact, by the way, in order to be with Paul, to fellowship with Paul, he had to be dropped down in that hole. He didn't know if he was ever coming out. This is the risk. This is why he was not ashamed of Paul, why he earnestly seeked Paul. And he didn't give up. He kept going. He didn't quit. Because what did he want to do? Well, it says here in the verse 16, he wanted to refresh Paul. Refresh Paul. Now, it sounds weird to say that, right? Weather can be refreshing. A nice cold drink is very refreshing in Bakersfield. But what does he mean by refresh? Well, partly that's true in the sense of he was probably providing food, water, clothing. Because in these prisons, if a friend didn't show up and give those things to you, you pretty much died. That's how it worked. So that might have been part of the encouragement. But I love here that Paul never mentions that. He doesn't tell us how he refreshes him. In fact, what he hints at as the refreshment is the presence of Onesiphorus. That was the refreshing part. Paul was stuck in a hole, terrible thing, worried about the churches in all of Asia, walking away from the faith. But it wasn't so bad as long as his brother in faith were there. I think there's a tremendous lesson for us to learn here on how we serve people. I know a lot of us, when, when people are in difficult circumstances, we, we get very nervous and we, we say, well, you know what, I don't know what to say when um, they lose a family member or a child. What do I say in moments like that? How can I encourage my brother and sister in the faith? What do I do when my brother or sister in the faith is in the hospital bed and they don't know if they're ever getting out or when they're going to get out and there's all this uncertainty? Well, in those moments, yes, go to them and read scripture and pray. That's where our hope is. But sometimes one of the most, the biggest blessings is really showing up, being there with them. I've had people tell me before, I, after, you know, years in the hospital, say, I don't know what you read. I know that you read the Bible. I don't know what you prayed. I don't remember what you, you know, how we interacted, but I, I remembered that you were there. And I was so thankful you were there. And that you were with me in that. So please don't hear me not, don't like toss the Bible out and just be there, right? Be there, yes. Start with that. Encourage your brothers and sisters with your present there. That's the encouragement that Paul is feeling. And yes, read the word, pray with them, be with them and serve them. That's what this man was known for. And by the way, it's not just that he was known for this with Paul because Paul was his favorite, right? This man was known for this in his hometown. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, he says, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, in the, the day of the resurrection. There are some scholars that actually think maybe this man died for, their faith, for his faith. And this is Paul saying, yes, Lord, raise him up in the last day. I don't think that's all the case here, but look what he says here about his service. And you well know, you being Timothy, church in Ephesus, you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. I love this. This man had a reputation in his hometown of serving the body, of sacrificing for the good of another. Now, he may have actually been even a deacon in this church. That word for service there that you see at the end of verse 18, that's the word where we get deacon from. So this could be almost like a title here. But this man was a faithful servant in the church. Even when everybody else was running away, And avoiding suffering, this is the man that would enter suffering to encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ. 
to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and even live out the example for others to follow. In many ways, he's living up to his name. Onesiphorus actually means useful, bringing profit or bringing blessing. I know we have babies all over the place here. That's a great baby name, Onesiphorus. It has a great meaning. Maybe you call him little Ani or something. I don't know what it might be, but it's a great name. That's what this, this man was living up to his name. We're so thankful for that. Well, I hope you can see the two paths are laid out right before us, aren't they? Two ways to live. The path of Phygelus and Hermogenes, the path of shameful desertion, the path of pride and self-protection and fear and cowardice. And really a trust in yourself because you're in charge. Or it's the path of Onesiphorus, the path of a devoted servant, the path of love, the path of self-sacrifice, the path of determination and a trust in the Lord. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. I don't know if I can do this. I'm looking at this passage, and I, I don't want to go the way of Phygelus and Hermogenes, but I know my heart. When I face suffering, my instinct is to run. My instinct is to avoid. When I have the chance to share my faith, I shrink back because I'm afraid of what people will say of me. And that's not even nearly as scary as this. So I am really worried. Will I have the strength? Will I have the power to be able to walk the right path? And the answer to that, we've already been given. Remember, we don't have the power to be a devoted servant in and of ourselves. We don't have the strength to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but that's what Paul has been telling Timothy this whole time. How do we walk this path? How do we guard the good deposit? How do we be more like the the faithful men here? Verse 13 again, right in the middle. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Brothers and sisters, this isn't self-motivated devotion self-empowered, our own strengths and abilities at work. No, this is spirit-empowered, Christ-exalting devotion here. Holy Spirit is the one who produces this fruit in us by the grace of God. So we trust, we take the step of faith, and that's what we see. And don't forget, by the way, Onesiphorus is really following another, isn't he? Follow him as he follows Christ. Because at the end of the day, Christ is the true servant, isn't he? Onesiphorus is just a shadow of the service that Christ has, has given us. As he says, Matthew 20, verse 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus laid down his life for us. Walk the path that we could not walk in our own strength. And that we failed to walk. And then died on the cross in our place to raise us from the pit of death. The pit of judgment. And he rose from the dead, freeing us from the bondage of sin. So that we can be forgiven and cleansed of sin. But also, so that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Transforming us. Changing us. Empowering us to live like this. To live like this faithful brother. So brothers and sisters, I, I present to you again what Paul is saying here. This is really a fork in the road for all of us. It's a call like Joshua calls the people to in Joshua 24. Choose this day whom you will serve. 
Will you walk the path of shameful destruction? Will you follow Phygelus and Hermogenes down the road of desertion because you don't want to suffer? You don't want it to cost you? Or will you run to Christ in faith? Run to him. Bow your knees before him. Trust in him. And trust that the Holy Spirit in you will work out that salvation as you faithfully trust him. This is our calling, to serve the body like this brother, to guard the good deposit, but not in our own strength, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this picture even, Lord, for the chance to see these two paths before us. And I pray for young and old, for those with weak faith, those with strong faith, Lord, you would enable all of us all of us, to trust that you will empower us to live in a way that honors you. Lord, help us to trust also for the awareness, the uh, exposing of our sins so that we turn to you and repent. Trust that you are a faithful shepherd who will discipline us and keep us on course. And Lord, trust that even the suffering that we have in this world, the suffering that we want to run from, is not worth comparing to the glory of to come in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that you would be honored with our lives as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.